Good morning. So I was talking with my mother this past week, and uh, <laughs> she was telling me this story about how when I was three, she had, uh, as the three-year-olds take off, um, uh, when I was three, she took me and my older sister and my little brother shopping into this, at this mall in Dayton, Ohio, uh, where I grew up. And, um, you know, she's, I, I'm three, so my brother is like 18 months, and my little sister is five. So it's three little kids, and she's in this big department store, and she turns around, and I'm gone. She can't find me. She's, you know, calling my name. Joe, I, I was Joe back then. Joe, Joe, come, come here, you know, and, and she's yelling my name. She's walking up and down the aisles, and she's starting to get a little bit panicky. And um, this, is, this is her telling the story, and she can't find me. So she kind of raises her voice, and she you know, picks up the pace, and she's looking all over the place, up and down the aisles. And, she, and, and as she's looking, it, you know, it turned a little bit to come, starting with a little bit of irritation, like, where is that kid, you know, to a little bit of fear rising up because wasn't the best part of town and, you know, kidnapping was happening. And so and she was just, you know, she was afraid. Where is he? And she can't find me anywhere. So she runs up to the front desk and says, you know, can I use your phone? Didn't have cell phones in those days. And she calls my dad. And his, at that point, his job was only like 10 or 15 minutes away, I think. And so, you know, he's like, whoa. You know, so before he comes over, he says, go talk to security and see if they can, you know, help you. And I'm jumping in the car, and I'm driving over. So he heads over to, to the mall, and um, mom goes to security, and she you know, registers this lost child complaint, and they start making PA announcements over the, you know, over the speakers, and, and clerks are walking up and down the aisles. Security guards are walking around, and nobody can find me. And finally, this security or this um, store clerk comes up to my mom. You're the one that lost the boy. She goes, yeah, have you seen him? She goes, no, but I think I know where he is. She's like, where? where? Follow me. So they, she, she follows this lady to the clothing department where they had all these racks that looked like this. Have you seen these kind of things? And they, she said, sometimes the kids climb up underneath these things. They think it's a fort. And so they look underneath, oh, not there. Look at another one, oh, not there. She's like four or five of these things. Finally pulls back, there I am. I'm crashed. I'm falling asleep. And so these things have like a little shelf underneath them, some of them, that to kind of keep it stable. And I, there I am, three-year-old Joe, sound asleep with all this commotion going on around me. My mom didn't know whether to wring my neck or hug me because she was like, I, I, was, I was literally panic, having a panic attack. Then she says to me on the phone, she goes, I feel like that's happening again. Even as I'm telling this story, I can feel that, that rise of panic. I'm like, mom, mom, chill out, you know? And then I said, you know, mom, I'm sorry. <laughs> All these years later, have I ever apologized for what I put you through? And she's like, no, that's okay. I'm like, I can hear it in your voice. And she's like... It's just, you know, your mind begins to race and all these things. And the, the longer it went, she said it was 30 minutes, but it felt like an eternity. And just as they were finding my dad, dad drove up and I'm like, I, you know, I don't, I, in fact, I don't even remember what I was thinking. I don't even remember this. I don't remember sleeping. I don't remember anything. But hearing her tell the story, I was like, ah, mom. And probably just about anybody who's been a parent for very long has lost a kid somewhere. Some of you are shaking your heads like, yep, I've done that. And maybe it's been 10 minutes, which just can be terrifying. Maybe it's 30 minutes, which seems like forever. But imagine three days. Imagine losing your child for three days and you can't find them. That's the story I want to talk about from Luke chapter 2 because this happened to Joseph and Mary. Yes, that Joseph and Mary the mother and father of Jesus himself. And I don't know if you've ever read this story, but it's in Luke chapter 2, verses 41, 47. How about we stand to our feet? And uh, this is a great story, but it even has greater truth for each one of us. doesn't matter whether you're a child or a parent. There is some cool things that God showed me through this passage. Can't wait to show you. So Luke chapter 2, here we go, verse 41. Every year... Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when he was 12, they went up to the festival according to the custom. 
after the festival was over, it was about a seven-day, eight-day festival, after it was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. (laughs) Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a whole day. It's about a three- or four-day trip back to their hometown in Nazareth. They traveled a whole day. Then they began looking for him. Some of you are like, they took a whole day to realize he was gone. Uh, Hold on. (laughs) They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem on a whole other day travel to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But his parents, when they saw him, they were astonished. And that word astonished means to be struck. Could be struck with anger, anger, could be struck with astonishment. It just just, it's just like they were blown away. And his mother says to him, so we, we feel like the way she's feeling, son, why have you treated us like this? And it's Mother Mary. So she was like, son, why have you treated us? No. Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I had been anxiously searching. Can you imagine just the spit coming out of her mouth? It was like, ah! So we'll stop there. But I'm only gonna preach actually through verse 47. That was verse 48. But I wanted you to hear Mother Mary freaking out on Jesus. So you can be seated. And um, I I love this story because I've lost some kids. You know, um, thank God I found them. Just just want you to know. Uh, I think a lot of parents have. So it's not hard for me to imagine the panic, even though I've only had to go through, I don't know, five or 10 minutes of it. I just can't imagine three days. And for those of you who are already starting to judge Joseph and Mary, you know, it took them a long time to realize. So let me just help you understand. These festivals that they went to from Nazareth up to Jerusalem, even though it's south, you always go up to Jerusalem. These festivals, they lasted for a week. And a lot of people went to them. So what they would do is travel in a caravan. And there might be, you know, 100, 300, maybe 400 people traveling in this caravan. Same way on the back, they're going back to Nazareth. And as the caravan travels three, four days, you know, it stretches out. And, you know, the guys might be in a group and the, and the women in a group and maybe the kids kind of running around. And, and, you know, they're all together and it's fun. And everybody knows each other. They're all from the same town or same surrounding towns. And family and friends, in those days, people didn't live far away from each other. The families lived together. So it's a close-knit group. And Joseph and Mary are like, you know, he's probably with Aunt, you know, Marge. No, they're quite, that's not a very good Hebrew name. Aunt, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever. So, you know, know, Joseph's thinking Mary's got Jesus and Mary's thinking Joseph's got Jesus. You know, by the way, this is Jesus. He's perfect. He's never run away. You know, he's never done anything wrong, never lied. So it's like, who cares? You know, he's, he's fine. They get to the end of the day and I don't know whether it's time for dinner or whether it's time for bed or when they realized he's not here. So as the text says, they're running up and down, talking to the caravan, talking to people nobody has seen Jesus. It's not like somebody says, oh yeah, I saw him back there. Nobody has seen him. And so that's why the text says that they're like, okay, he he must not be here because everybody knows Jesus. And so they're heading back to Jerusalem and they're flipping out. Here's one of the things that just struck me. How do you, how did they sleep that first night? Did they See, I just heard some moms go, mm, yeah, yeah, whoa. And did they travel back that night? Uh, You know, I don't know. It might have been unsafe just for the two of them to travel. So, you know, people traveled in big groups. So did they even get any sleep? And if they are, you know, they're they're playing in their mind. When's the last time we saw him? Was it it here? Was it there? You know, did you see him last? And maybe they're even starting to blame because it's been a whole day now. And you might be thinking these are irresponsible parents, but actually whether you think they're responsible or negligent or bad parents, the text doesn't say anything like that. In fact, you might be feeling that, but Luke, the writer, is telling this story just like he has the rest of Luke chapter 2, actually Luke 1 and 2. He's painting a picture of Joseph and Mary, not as bad parents or negligent parents, but 
all over this story and the, the text before that is a picture of Jesus' parents as being godly parents. So this is not a story of, well, Jesus is 12 years old, it's time to leave home, and his parents, you know, kind of blew it anyway. So this is the beginning of the end of Jesus' childhood, and, you know, it's time to stretch his wings and to move on. That's not what's happening in this story. Joseph and Mary have not blown it. Luke does not in any way, shape, or form try to paint them to look bad, as I said, just instead, just the opposite, that they were godly. In fact, we just saw a couple verses ago, verse 39, when Joseph and Mary, and watch these words, had done everything required by the law of the Lord. That is, they had done everything that the scriptures had commanded them to do for their child. And that was a lot. We'll talk about that in a second. There was a lot of things that God says, I want you to do this and this and this. They had done everything. So that's just one verse that helps us see how thorough they were being. And now the first verse of our passage, verse 41, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem. And I've already told you that's about a four-hour trip there. And seven to eight days of the festival, maybe they stay a couple more days because they got relatives down in Bethlehem. And then now a four-day trip back easily two, two and a half weeks of them being gone. No income, not making any money that time. It's expensive to travel, food, lodging, all that stuff. But every year they're doing this. So this is one more example because God commanded every male, you know, and bring your family to come to the temple in Jerusalem at Passover every year. And they're doing it. Everything we learn about Joseph and Mary is they are godly, devout, responsible, obedient, amazing people. And now we can see why God handpicked them to raise his son until we get to this story. It's like, what, what happened? And I can just imagine Joseph and Mary, because remember, they're thinking about the angels that came 12 years ago and the shepherds and the magi, the wise men, and all these things that we've read about in Luke 2 and all these incredible things that happened, Simeon and Anna. You can read it all in the first two chapters. And it's just amazing how many things have happened. God has handpicked them to raise the Messiah, the Son of God, and they've lost him. Just let that sink in. You know, this is the savior of the world. He's the hope of the world. He's amazing, but he's lost. And Joseph and Mary are the ones that lost him. So I don't even know if they even talk to God about it because they're maybe thinking, is, is God angry? I gave you my kid, my only son, and you lost him, you know? And maybe they're feeling guilty about it. He's just like, I don't know. I feel like a failure because I know I have felt like a failure before as a parent. Anybody else ever felt two of you, okay? You're an amazing group of people. Maybe you should be up here preaching. I, I know I have felt like a failure. I can't imagine it's that big of a stretch for Joseph and Mary thinking either it's day one or day two or the second night. Sooner or later, they're thinking like, man, I, I've completely failed God. I've, I've failed Jesus Joseph, I failed you, Mary. Mary, I failed you. you, you know, and we failed the human race. I mean, that's pretty colossal failure. But that's not what this text is about. They were probably feeling all that panic, all that fear, maybe all those feelings of, of failure. But they're not being described as bad parents at all. And I love this because when I have failed as a parent and when you have failed as a parent, that does not make you a failure, just like any other part of life. Failure happens, but when you fail, that does not make you a failure. That's not the final word. And this story does not, it's not a bad story about Joseph and Mary. In fact, it's actually a cool story because what we see happening is that like any other parent, <laughs> doesn't matter how godly you are, you still have difficulties. And so therefore, all of us need help with our parenting. And we've been talking about this the last couple of weeks um, as we've watched Joseph and Mary in the last couple of chapters, we've noticed that their parenting style is something that 
they've picked up right from the scriptures. And we talked about how God described himself as a father. He uses the metaphor of parenting and family. I'm your father, Israel. And I think he said it in his voice, not you know, Sky, um, Star Wars voice, whatever that is. Or what's the guy's name? I am your father. Is that Darth Vader? Okay, so it's not that sound, all right? <laughs> See how much I know about that show. Um, and so, so here's, here's Joseph and Mary uh, trying to raise Jesus the best that they can, and they need help. And so they've gone to the scriptures, which we would call the Old Testament, and they've watched how God, describing himself as a father, then says to the nation of Israel, you're my children. I'm your dad. You're my kids. I'm your father. You're my children. And I'm parenting you. But then, not only does he describe the way he's parenting them, he then says to the, ch- the children of Israel, who are adults, I want you to pass on everything that I'm teaching you. I want you to parent your kids the way I'm parenting you. It's over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You see God saying, pass this on to your children. Impress this upon your children. Everything I've taught you, you teach them. Tell them the stories. I want you to parent them the way I've parented you. And so what we did was we, create, we, we, we walked through that parenting plan that God parented the nation of Israel with and trained them. And we have built... Um, a parenting plan based upon the way God parented Israel. And if you haven't been here, let me unpack this real quick for you. It won't take me long. The, the first thing I'm going to say, I really, I didn't even talk about the first time I unveiled this seven-part plan because I, I thought of it last week as I was preaching about grace and realizing how foundational grace is for life and for family. So the, the first thing, the first part of this plan is to, as a, as a family, as a father, as a mother, is to, to create a climate of grace in your home. This is last week's sermon. To create a, an environment, a climate of grace, and that becomes a foundation for your family. For the, for the rest of your family's life, this is a place of grace. And a lot of people don't see this in the Old Testament, like, I still hear people say, well, the Old Testament is law. It's the New Testament that is grace. There's no grace in the Old Testament. And I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. So let me just take a couple of seconds, if that's how you still see the Old Testament, and remind you of a couple of simple things. This is just a few things. How does the Bible start off? God creates. Why? Because he's a God of love and grace. And he creates freely. And it's an amazing thing he does in creation. He creates an Adam and Eve. And he gives them a free, their free will. And he puts them in paradise. I mean, talk about grace. God has done all this thing just out of his love. He's created paradise for them. Everything they need. And it's all for them. What a God of grace. What a God who gives. And what do Adam and Eve do? They rebel against the perfect parent, God the Father. And does God kill them off? No. He gives them grace. And so God creates, God places them in the paradise. He gives them grace, and it just gets better and better. As people rebel against God, God gives them grace after grace. Then he comes to a man named Abram and says, out of my own free grace, I'm going to give you a son who's going to have a son, who's going to have 12 sons, and I'm going to build a great nation out of you, Abram, because I love you, because I choose to, because I'm a God of grace. Abram's like, dude, I'm 99 God. I'm 99 years old. I, I, I can't have kids. But God, out of his grace, gives Abram, changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations, of multitudes. And then they start seeing this thing grow. God's just gracing, gracing, gracing. Well, if you know the story, they grew so big that when a famine happened in Israel, nobody had anything to, to eat. They were going to die. So they went to Egypt to get food. And while they're in Egypt, They grew more and more. It's like the sand on the seashore, the Bible says. They just exploded to the point where the Egyptians started getting intimidated by the sheer numbers of the Israelites because God's blessing them. And they, the Egyptians, begin to enslave them. You know this story. They begin to make the Israelites their slaves, and they beat them, and they kill them, and they mistreat them. Slavery is always a brutal, ugly, horrible thing. And they're suffering under the the hand of the Egyptians. And what does God do? He rescues them. He saves them. He delivers them. The God of grace brings the uh, Israelites out of Egypt, the 10 plagues, all that stuff. That's God's grace. And then he gives them the 10 commandments. Don't forget, grace came before law. 
God created, God blessed, God did all these things. He saved them, delivered them, gave them all kinds of grace, and then gave them the 10 commandments and said, hey, let's live together in a covenant. Law comes after grace. And that's not even half of the story because the Bible continues in the Old Testament to show God gracious and gracious again and again and again. So you see grace in the Old Testament, you see grace in the New Testament. And I wanna say to you today, we need, last week's sermon, we need to create a climate of grace in our homes, amen? So last week's sermon, I won't be done with that. Next one. Secondly, I said God gave them the Lord. That's Torah, that's teaching, that's the scripture. Why? Instructions to live a God-centered life because that's the goal of a parent who loves God is to nurture a God-centered life in their children so that they would seek first the kingdom of God. They would seek first God's kingdom and they would live their lives as God-centered people. So God gave the instructions. Then God teaches the people prayers and and tells them, pass this on to your kids. Help your kids to develop a God-centered life by a life of prayer, daily prayers. We talked about that. Then number four, God gave them customs. And these customs, you can read them in the Old Testament, are all designed to emphasize that God is the center of their life. You see the pattern here. Well, the children disobey, so God disciplines them because he loves them, and he's trying to train them to live God-centered lives. Then we talked about how God told them to build a tabernacle, and then eventually a temple, and put it in the center so that it illustrates everything about the temple, everything about the tabernacle, where it was, everything that happened in it is to illustrate a God-centered life. And then finally, number seven, we talked about how then God commanded them to party. I know, I just said that. God commanded the Old Testament people to party. They're called feasts and festivals. He gave them seven of them. It just happens to be number seven. Seven festivals that marked the year where they took a whole week off, no work, and they ate, drank, and danced. And then they ate and drank and danced. And then they ate and drank and danced because God commanded them to party. You should read your Old Testament. It's amazing. And so this is what God created so that as the parents of Israel did this with their kids, they were constantly reinforcing this and teaching and shaping a God-centered life in their kids. And so what we did was we then looked at that as, okay, can we create a parenting plan for today based upon this and modified for today? And so we're working on that as a church staff, and we're going to tell you more about that. So cool. Let me finish this with this word festivals, because that is where we are in our text today in Luke 2. The Passover festival, there it is in the text, where uh, it says every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And this festival marked the beginning of of the Jewish year, and it was the way that God commanded them to remember how I delivered you out of Egypt how I saved you by my grace and and delivered you. Every year, I want you, all Jews, to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. And for a whole week, I want you to party and remember what I did for you and and talk about it, sing about it, celebrate all that. And that's where Jesus and his parents are when Jesus is 12 years old. They do this every year. And let me explain to you now what's happening in the Passover. It is... um, I've been to Jerusalem. It's not a very big city. And in those days, it held about 20 to 25,000 people. So that's about the size of Avon Lake in our area. Uh, and in fact, Avon is, is actually a little bit smaller. I thought Avon Lake was smaller than Avon, but I looked at the census and Avon is smaller than Avon Lake. So 22, 23,000 as of the 2020 census. But even though it's the same size as ancient Jerusalem, ge- geographically, Avon and Avon Lake are much bigger space. So crunch the, t- the population of Avon Lake, let's say, into, you know, about like a, a, a square mile. So it's not a very big space. 25,000 people crunched into this place. At Passover, the experts say that it swelled to at least 250,000. That's 10 times the size. Somebody go, whoa. Are, are you with me? 25,000 people living in a small space, and now it's 250,000. And you say, okay, what's a little bit better? 
Some people think it went to as much as 500,000, half a million people crammed into this relatively small city. And a lot of them were in the temple precinct. And um, it's just madness. And what's happening is all this activity is centered around the temple. And you can hear, if you listen to the crowd, you can hear animals bleating because goats and lambs are getting sacrificed right in the temple courts and it's kind of bloody. And on one side of the, where the animals are being sacrificed, there's people protesting with PETA signs. And the other side, you got other signs and they're saying, we like people who eat tasty animals. And so you got both sides of people, you know, yelling at each other. This is actually happening with the yelling and the shouting. People singing, people blowing horns, uh, people chanting and it's loud and it's crowded and it's smelly. And all of this noise, all these people are happening. And there's 12 year old Jesus in the crowd. And it's just, crazy how wild it must have been every time the festival of Passover happened. But 12 years old is not only interesting because this is the time that Jesus is starting to become a man, but at age 13, he will become what's called a son of the covenant or son of the commandments, which means he will be responsible to obey all of the Old Testament, all the Old Testament commands, maybe even to have memorized. So the, the Bible said that, they, that take your 12-year-old son to the festival of the Passover in anticipation of his 13th year where he will become a son of the commandments. So 12 years, year was, 12 years old was a time of teaching. Son, this is what God's gonna require from you next year. This is what it means to be a man. You're responsible now. So this is significant that 12-year-old Jesus is in this crowd and all these things that are happening and godly parents have brought them there because they want him to obey God. They want him to know the scriptures. But godly parents who are doing everything, quote unquote, right, still have family problems. This might be the most significant thing you hear today because so many of us believe that if I was more godly, my kids would behave better. If I did a better job of raising my children, they wouldn't be far from God today. They would be better kids. And I want you to see Joseph and Mary going to all the sacrificial extent to raise Jesus the way God commanded, to bring him to the festival, to do all these things. And they're having, at that moment, one of the greatest crises any parent can have. I've lost my child and they're flipping out. And just use a little bit of imagination as you think about how Joseph and Mary are feeling. And then remember the last time you had a problem with one of your kids. And remember the feelings you had, maybe the frustration with your kid, maybe the anger towards your kid, maybe the feelings of failure for you as a parent and you didn't do it right. Or maybe you're a parent of an adult of adult kids now, and you've raised them in the church. You did, you were godly as you could possibly be, you thought to yourself, and yet your kids are not walking with God. Listen, godly parents aren't immune from family problems. Can I get an amen? See, some of you don't believe that. You need to hear it. You need to believe that God placed your kids in your family. He wants you to raise them the best he can, but they have their own will. I keep saying this. There was a perfect parent once. I mean, still perfect, God the Father, and his kids rebelled, Adam and Eve. So if God's kids rebelled, don't be surprised when yours do. It's not all your fault. Hear that. Some of you need to hear it so bad. You just beat yourself up. No, you weren't a perfect parent. Neither were Joseph and Mary, but they were godly, but they still lost Jesus and they're still having these problems. So let's, let's continue. Verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem looking for him. Verse 46, after three days they found him. I just read that in a couple of seconds. I navigated the end of verse 44. I'm sorry. I, I navigated the end of verse 45 into verse 46 in one millisecond but that right there is an eternity. That, that's three days of chronological time 
It's an eternity in the heart and mind and soul of Joseph and Mary, isn't it? They're flipping out. So I created this next text in red because they're panicking. And whether it's my mom losing me when I was three years old in the, in the department store for, three, for 30 minutes, or whether it's you losing your kid for five minutes in a grocery store, or whether it's your teenage son who's starting to rebel, or, or whether it's other kinds of family issues that you're having, when, the, when you're in those moments, you begin to panic. You begin to get afraid. You begin to freak out. Maybe you take it out on your other kids. Maybe you take it out on your spouse. Maybe you're blaming. Maybe you're blaming yourself, but you're living in the red. Now, here's what I want you to see. Pay close attention. While you're living in the red, your fear, your panic, think of the worst moment you have ever had as a parent, the most fearful moment, the moment when, the season when you were most terrified. You know, your kid ran away from home and you haven't heard from them for a couple of weeks. You know, just your unimaginable pain, your worst fearful time. While you're living in the red of fear and panic, verse 46 is happening at the same moment. That is that Jesus is comfortably sitting in the temple, being taught by and, 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 and uh, discussing the word of God with religious leaders. And here's why I want you to see this. The green stands for growth. Is that in the worst possible days of Joseph and Mary's life, God was working but they didn't see it. And this is what I want you to see for your life. We talk a lot about in this church that God is always working. And we, we, we celebrate and we remind ourselves, God's always working. He's sovereign. But when it comes to our kids, we tend to forget that. And when we feel like a failure, when we're living in the red, it's hard for us to imagine that God is working in our kid's life. Now you can say, yeah, but they're your, you know, our kids are not Jesus. And they're not in a temple, you know, they're out living on the street somewhere. I get it. But it's the same God who was sovereign over Joseph and Mary and Jesus who is sovereign over your kids. Amen? Is he or not? Is God sovereign? Is he sovereign only part of the time? Is he only sovereign in the Bible? Or is God sovereign in your life and in the life of your kids? Come on. Is he? See, some of you can say yes, but you don't believe it because you're racked by fear and you're racked by anxiety. And I don't blame you. It's one thing for me to be able to trust God for my life. It's one thing for me to be able to trust God with your life. I'm sorry. And it's a whole other thing for me to trust God with my children's life. Amen? Come on, God, where are you? When are you gonna act? Come, come on, God, do something. And the longer it goes, the more afraid you get and the more you're like, I gotta step in here. I gotta do something. I gotta control this. My son is lost and I'm looking for him and I can't find him. Maybe you've said, you know, what happened to my sweet little eight-year-old? You know, now he's like, wah! You know, what happened to my sweet little 10-year-old? You know, now she's rebellious and got a sassy mouth. And what just happened? You know, or maybe what happened to my little kid now? He's 19. He's left the church. He won't call me. I don't even know where he is. I raised him better than this. I raised her better than this. They're out. You're looking for that, that child that you miss and you wish to God that they would come home. You can't find them. What do you do? Here's what I want to invite you into. Remember that godly parents must depend on God's sovereign grace. Otherwise, you melt down. Otherwise, you clamp down and you, you ramp up the control. You ramp up the punishments. You, 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 you just take over. But godly parents are not control freaks. Godly parents trust God. And sometimes I get tired of us talking about trusting God because we're talking about trusting God when things are going well. That's not worth anything. That's a little overdone. But the time to trust God is when our life is falling apart. That's when we find out whether we trust God or not. And parenting, 
parenting brings us face to face with one of the most difficult times of trust. And if you haven't experienced that, you will. It's just a matter of time. And whether it's when your kids are little, or whether your kids are in school, or whether your kids have grown up and left home. As a matter of fact, you know, this uh, being a parent of adult children is such a challenge that we've, we're starting a class on March 8th. That's an empty nest. <laughs> we're starting a class called Doing Life with Your Adult Children. How do I navigate these days? Remember we talked about the five stages of parenting? This is the fifth stage, the caring consultant stage. And there's a book by a guy named Jim Burns, who is a longtime you know, seasoned youth leader, and our, our, our team is going to use this book to take you through that class. So if you need that class, sign up for it. It starts March 8th. But back to this. I want you to remember, you can either freak out, have an anxiety attack, put the screws on your kids, or you can learn to depend upon God's sovereign grace. Because if you have tried to live as a godly parent, then you've planted seeds. Maybe you wish you would have planted more. That's okay. Don't, don't worry about how many seeds you planted. If you've planted seeds, trust that God will make those seeds grow. That's what's happening in this story, that Jesus is going to the temple not out of rebellion, not out of disobedience. He's going because he's starting to grow. Just like it says in verse 52, Jesus grew in grace. So every child grows. They grow emotionally as well as physically. They grow intellectually, and they need to be able to stretch their wings. And can you trust that God is using the seeds you've planted to grow them? You know, just like a farmer plants the seeds but can't see the growth happening, but the seasoned farmer doesn't dig up the seeds. Are they growing? <laughs> They're not you know, hovering over the seeds. Are they growing? Oh, put them, dig them up tomorrow, put them back in. No, you're trusting that God will make, it's the law of the harvest. God is making them grow. This happened in, 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 later on in the New Testament when Paul, the apostle, started hearing about this church in Corinth um, kind of having, having favorites. And it was like having favorites with campus pastors. You know, my favorite is Apollos. My favorite is Cephas. My favorite is Paul. And, and Paul writes to him and goes, what are you guys doing? Don't, don't have favorites. You know, don't forget that God brings multiple people into our lives to help grow us. And he says in verse six, I'm the one that planted the seeds, the apostle Paul. Apollos watered it, but never forget, God, has been making it grow. So this argument's about who's my favorite pastor, who's my favorite speaker, stop with that. God is the one who makes them grow. And that's a good thing for us to remember as parents, that we plant the seeds, but we can't make our kids grow. We can't make them do anything. We plant the seeds, God will bring other people in their life to water them, but God makes them grow. Your job is to plant those seeds to seek to nurture growing disciples. In fact, I want to close the sermon by using this phrase, growing disciples, as a segue into the second point in your sermon, but I won't spend as much time as I did on the first point, but I, I want to transition because I discovered that this text is not only a great text to help us as parents, but looking at the next couple of verses, we see a picture of a growing disciple. Who is the picture we see? It's Jesus himself. This is so absolutely fascinating that Luke records in just one verse three or four powerful truths about what a growing disciple do, does. So let me set it up by helping you see. Again, Joseph and Mary are flip, flipping out. They don't know where Jesus is. Jesus is in the temple and what's he doing in that temple? Well, he's sitting among the teachers. He's listening to them and asking questions. And again, when we said, this is the green, this is the beautiful, this is God working in Jesus' life. They're still living in the red, freaking out. But bottom line is that every kid needs a challenging environment. Every growing disciple needs a challenging environment. And that's what Jesus has been seeking out. That's why he's going to the temple. Let me put it this way. As awesome as you are as a parent, 
your kids need more than what you can give them, what you can teach them, what you can help them with. They need aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas. They need neighbors. They need people at church. They need Sunday school teachers. They need student ministry pastors and directors. They need children's ministries directors. They need the family of God because as your kids grow and begin to stretch their wings, they need to be challenged. And what's true for kids is also true for every disciple. Every growing disciple needs to move on to the next level of teaching, the next level of discussion, the next level of depth. That's why we've got, that's why we teach classes here and challenge you to take these theology classes because you need to go to the next level. You need a more challenging environment or you'll stagnate. This is natural. This is natural growth. So what's happening in the life of Jesus is that he, like every other kid, is growing and like every other growing disciple, he needs a challenging environment. I remember, I know I have, you know, just kind of winced when my children will say, you know, I went to this church and this pastor was talking and he, this is what he said. And I was like, it changed my life. And I thought, I've said that. You didn't hear me say that? Come on, you've said this as a parent. You may not be a pastor, but you've said, you know, I taught you that. But no, they didn't learn it from you because all the times you were talking, you're their dad. But they heard it from somebody else. And it's like, wow, the lights go on. It's one of the amazing, insightful person. Well, so am I. But God designed it so that we can hear from different people. Don't be jealous of that. That's why we have children's ministries directors and children's ministries ministries and, and student ministries. There are people on our staff that are here to help you. Don't be jealous when the kids tell them things that they don't tell you. It's, it's natural. They need a challenging, the next environment. In fact, I, I just want to give a commercial for, for if you're a, a, a parent of small kids and you want to some help with raising your kids. Why don't you meet with one of our children's ministries, pastors or directors, and say, can I just talk to you? Maybe they have some resources. Maybe they'll just sit down and talk. Or maybe you've got school-age kids and you need a student ministries person. And if you're like, well, I don't know who those people are on our campus, go talk to the campus pastor. We've got people that want to meet with you and are trained and they will help you. Don't ignore them. They're God's gift to you and your kids to help provide that next step, that next environment to help you grow. Those teachers that Jesus sought out, mom and dad, I love you. You're Joseph and Mary. I love you, but I need something more. Can you hear that? Can you accept that as a parent? I, I, I need some more challenge. I, I need people who know more about the Bible than you do, mom and dad. I need people who, who can challenge me. This is what's happening here. Sometimes what looks like rebellion in our kids, sometimes what looks like disobedience in our kids is actually the natural spreading of their wings. You can tell in the attitude. But don't rush to, they don't trust me anymore. They don't love me anymore. They don't listen to me. They're just rebellious kids. No, They need to stretch their wings. God made them that way. Let them spread their wings. Don't be jealous or intimidated when they're getting help from other teachers besides you. You were their first teacher. You were their first teacher, but they need more. Can you just accept that? Someone say yes. Okay, there's two of you. That's great. So sitting with the teachers, and it helps us see that while Jesus is looking for more, this is true for every growing disciple as well. Not every disciple is insatiably curious, but every growing disciple is. Not every disciple is insatiably curious, but every growing disciple. That's the mark we see modeled in Jesus. I need some more teaching. I want more classes. I want more in-depth. I want to read a book about this. I want to take a seminar. I want more. That's good. That's, That's wonderful. It's the mark of a growing disciple. Is it true of your life? Stop talking about parenting for a while. Those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ, your disciples, would you call yourself a growing disciple? And if so, would you say that you're curious to know more about the Word of God? You want to know more about theology? You want to know more about what God's Word teaches? Or are you just satisfied with the status quo? Not every disciple is insatiably curious, but every growing disciple is. So Jesus, sitting among the teachers, Look at the first thing that Luke says. I don't understand how this happens. But some people read this verse and they conclude that Jesus was teaching. I don't see Jesus teaching. 
He probably could have. But what the Bible says is he's listening. Every growing disciple is a great listener. I'm listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit. I'm listening to people. I may know more than them, but I'm a learner. I'm a listener. Every great learner is a great listener. And I don't know how developed Jesus is at age 12. I get the feeling that he's pretty developed because they're blown away by the, the nature of his questions. Actually, sometimes it's the question that a person asks that's more impressive than the answers they give. So Jesus is asking these incredible questions. It's like, whoa, but even though he probably knows more, I, I don't know, he's listening. Such humility. Never stop listening. But, next thing, he's also asking questions. Another sign of humility. Never stop asking questions. Growing disciples are always learning. Never get to the point where you're like, okay, I know enough. There should always be a humility in your growing in knowledge. There should always be a hunger for more. You know, I've got a college degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a doctorate degree, an earned doctorate degree, and I'm still hungry. I'm still curious. I'm still learning. I, I hope to the day I die, I'm always a hungry, learning student of the word because you don't want a pastor teaching you who's not a student first. We gotta be students of the word of God for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Here's Jesus asking questions, learning Never stop asking questions. Friends, if we want to develop growing disciples in the church, growing disciples in our family, we need to recognize that this time that some people look at as rebellion and doubt and deconstruction, it might be the platform that helps them grow to the next level. Don't be faithless and flip out when somebody asks questions that you don't know the answers to, when somebody starts down a direction. I I know, I know, I know. That direction is death, but there's a sovereign God who is overseeing that. He may use the third or fourth step in that path. Trust God, right? Because friends, we can write it down. Parents who want to nurture Christ-like disciples must learn, and that's a learning experience on its own, to trust. I could have just said to trust God, but I want to remind us, he's a sovereign God. He's working. Let me close with this story. When I was three, I wandered away. That wasn't the last time I wandered. Some of you know my story, that when I was 16, I didn't wander away from a department store. I wandered away from my faith. I rejected my parents. I rejected their life. I rejected God. I rejected the church. And I plunged headlong into a culture of drugs and selling drugs and self-centeredness and dangerous living. I was major league wandering. Now it's not cute. I'm not three anymore. I'm 16. I'm 17. I'm 18. And I want you to know it crushed my godly parents. The hardest thing they went through was the rebellion of their children. But they began to discover that God can be what? Trusted. And they prayed for me and they cried and they wept and they cried out to God and they wept and they prayed and they wept and they prayed and they trusted and they grew deeper in their trust. And God was working on Jim. They let go, and they let God do his work. And I've told the story. I won't tell it again of how God brought me back. It was powerful. It was beautiful. It was God. So maybe some of your kids are wondering right now, take a note from my parents. Trust God. Pray. Weep. Cry out. Trust him. You can weep and trust at the same time. It's okay because your heart's broken. I'm not saying smile. My kids are lost. Praise God. I'm just trusting him. No, you're broken, but you're trusting. That's what I want to call you to. And you say, oh, Jim, so if I trust God, my kid will become a pastor. Actually, you probably don't want your kid to be a pastor. It's, it's, It's not as good as you think it is. But what you do want is for them to walk with God. And maybe that won't happen in the first year after they wander. Maybe it won't happen in the first five years. 
Maybe it won't happen in the first 10 years. Can you trust God when it turns into 10, 15, 20, 25? Is God sovereign or is he not? Is God's sovereignty limited by our timelines? No, no. Trust God. Let him be the sovereign God that he is. And I, I know this is not easy. I, I, I know. Like, trust me, I'm going through it. But this is what it comes down to. Can you say, will you say with me today, God, whatever comes my way. See, this is a song that we're going to sing, and we've sung it before, but I've never thought about it as a parent, and that's how I want to apply it today. God, whatever comes my way with my kids, with my family, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. Can you say that with me? Let's all stand to our feet in all of our campuses. And I don't care how you say it, whether you say it loud or whether it's a whisper, but in all of our campuses, would you say with me this word? Here we go. God, whatever comes my way, I will trust you. Oh, God, may it be true. Teach us to trust. And we confess. It's hard. It feels awkward to say because you're so trustworthy, but we're so full of ourselves and we're so full of fear. So we just confess. Lord, sometimes I, I struggle to trust you. And I wish it weren't true because you're so faithful and you don't deserve to be doubted. But that's what's happening in my heart right now. I, so I just say out loud, God, whatever comes my way, I trust you. Whether it seems like my kids are far away from you, they're not. You're sovereign on the highest mountain. Whether a kid feels like my kids are in the deepest sea, they're far away from you, they're not. You're sovereign there too. Whether I'm going through a storm, whether it's a, a time of calm, you're sovereign. So teach me to trust you. Teach me to let go. God, whatever comes my way, trust you. You are sovereign. You're good. You are trustworthy. Before I pray in your name,